I wanted just to uh, begin with a quick update. Um, many of you have, have tracked with and been aware of and heard the story of uh, over the last year and a half or so, of kind of our North Aurora campus getting planted in that neighborhood. And um, just this Easter season, for the very first time, um, they had the opportunity at our North Aurora campus to host their first ever uh, Easter extravaganza. So if you're, many of you are familiar with that, you've brought kids or grandkids to that at our Kesslinger campus. Well, this uh, Easter, we had to actually go to the other picture first. This is a, a group of our cast for Easter extravaganza. We had over 200 people come through at our North Aurora campus, many, many, many of whom were brand new to Chapel Street from the neighborhood, just hearing the story. And what was exciting about it, in addition to that, was that... Um, as a part of the cast at North Aurora, the student ministry group who has started to gather and meet on Sunday nights were, were playing a lot of the vital roles and are not only um, learning more of the story for themselves, but also sharing that story with the others and really getting plugged in, which that is a result of the block party they held in, in the fall and coming, meeting kids in the neighborhood. They gather uh, pretty much every Sunday evening um, to study together, to eat together. And so God's just doing some really cool stuff in, in our midst. And, and the reason I wanted to share, in addition to just updating all of you, many of you know that that campus launched um, debt-free. Uh, the, the $2 million needed to get that campus going, like the, the church um, gave towards that end and they were able to do that. And I just want to say thank you. When we, when we see stories like this, when we see God moving in our midst and working, um, it, we, re we recognize that it is um, incumbent upon the generosity of others. And we experience that in so many ways. And I see it all the time uh, in this community, whether it's the way you serve and you give of your resources and your abilities, or whether it's financial giving, all of that is, is making a kingdom difference. And we are grateful for you and uh, grateful that you are a part of this church. Um, I, I, wanna, I want you to recall, if you can, a moment when you have attempted to describe to someone an experience, a, something that you saw, but you found words failing you. If you can remember a time when when you had that experience. I had a friend that um, they, they were in uh, Iceland and on one of the given nights, like it was one of those nights when the Northern lights were just like on fire, like vibrant. And they're trying to tell me about it, right? Trying to tell me what they saw, but like it, words were faintly, they were like almost frustrated, like trying to relay it because you, you could tell like, they were like, I'm not doing it justice. For me, one of those experiences was when I had the opportunity in Puerto Rico to swim in one of those bioluminescent bays. Have you ever seen this? I think there's like five of them in the world and three of them are in Puerto Rico. So if you've never experienced this, it, it's, there's some kind of microscopic plankton in the water. You, you have to have the exact right conditions. The, you have to have the mangroves there. Some, I don't understand any of it. But all I know is I, on this one particular evening, I was there, we had taken students on a uh, service trip, and this was part of kind of an exercise or a, like a touristy kind of thing we were doing. It was in the middle of the night, it was pitch black, there was a new moon, so there was no, there was no natural light out there at all. It was, it was dark, and they go out into this bay of the ocean, 
and then we went swimming. So you're already just terrified, right? Like that something's gonna eat you. Like you can't see anything. Like this is a youth pastor's nightmare in many ways. Like <laughs> swimming is already nerve wracking and then we're doing it in the night where you can't see each other. And then all these, the more the water moves, the more these microscopic bioluminescent plankton start to just glow. And I can't even tell you. Like this was one of the coolest things I've ever experienced in my life. And if I would try to relay to you what that experience was like, words would fail me. Because I was, I was left kind of just dumbfounded in it. I have to assume that when Paul writes this soaring description, he's trying to convey the fullness of Jesus, that he has to be experiencing something similar. He's writing this letter to the church in, in Colossae, and, and what the result of it is a, a brilliant and beautiful picture of Jesus. So much so that this passage that we're going to study today, this this became known and, and memorized and then sung in the early church so that they would be rooted in this accurate understanding of who Jesus is. Just the challenge of trying to encapsulate the fullness of Jesus with the limitations of words had to be so challenging for Paul. See, of everything that, that we can stand up here and, and teach on of all the different debates that we have about theology and perspective and and things that you and I need to study that are absolutely important and, and critical in our faith what is 100% absolutely essential that we get right is Jesus who Jesus is what Jesus has done he is the center of our faith and because he is the center of our faith he is intended to be ought to be the center of our lives last week if you were here with us we began our series on this letter to the colossians i encouraged you all if you remember to bring a physical bible with you today if you didn't do that that's okay but i i think it's it's one of those things in my my mind when we're reading a physical letter i think it it helps to see it in the context of the whole letter so i encourage you uh, to, to bring a Bible and a journal with you uh, as we work our way through Colossians together. But as it relates to this question of salvation and sufficiency, essentially, is, is Jesus ultimately enough? We're going to discover that Paul, throughout this letter, makes the case, and, and I think we'll see also presents the evidence that Jesus is superior to all deities, to all religions, to all rituals, to all worldviews. Right? He, he begins his letter by establishing the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus, the one who is preeminent. To borrow the lingo of our kids, Jesus is the goat, right? He's the greatest of all time. Last week, just for some context, we talked that, about how this letter that Paul writes is to a community of, of Jesus followers that Paul has never personally been with. He's never visited them. The church is most likely planted by um, a man referenced in the letter named Epaphras, who is now with Paul, visiting Paul, while Paul is in prison in Rome. And Epaphras, while he's there, he, he begins to update Paul on how things are going in this young church. 
Paul, in his letter, he, he starts by affirming their faith in Jesus. He, he celebrates the love that they have for each other, the way they're caring for each other. But it also seems evident that Epaphras shares some concerns that he has with Paul. Some pressures that, that these Jesus followers are experiencing in, in and from the surrounding culture. Not unique to them. I, mean, I think we experience that all the time. Probably every gathering of Jesus followers has has is some experience of that because he exists within a culture, but Epaphras shares some things with, with Paul, and so Paul writes and, and tries to address this. We saw last week how, how some of these various cultural or religious philosophies that were prevalent in the surrounding culture were threatening to, or, or maybe already had, infiltrated or intermingled with the message of the gospel. The people, the people in one form or another were starting to kind of hold a perspective or an understanding that Jesus alone, Jesus on his own, wasn't enough. Many of these young Christians likely, it seems evident in Paul's letter to the Colossians that there's a majority of, of Gentile believers, meaning they didn't grow up in, in a Jewish background, and so they're, they're coming at this from all the background and history of their Greek and Roman gods. And so maybe there's this temptation to just kind of add Jesus into the pantheon of other gods. And, and he's kind of one among many. There's also some research that, that suggests that there's some early versions of, of kind of Gnostic philosophy that is present in, in this general area. And so... The idea that the spiritual, the spirit part of us is, is good, right? Is that's the thing that you should, would lean into. And the material part of you is, is corrupted or evil is, is kind of some of the Gnostic idea. So then Jesus, when we're talking about Jesus being God, spirit, good, right? Showing up in flesh and bone, that all becomes a bit of a problem. At the very least, it's that in this line of thinking, Jesus was corrupted in some way by his humanness. Still others are coming to faith in Jesus out of a Jewish background. And, and so for them, there may be this temptation for it to be Jesus and Old Testament law, Old Testament tradition, Jesus and circumcision, or Jesus and the uh, eating a, a kosher diet, whatever it was, it was Jesus and. And in each case, they're either adding something to or missing something in Jesus. So Paul simply puts, is, is making the case at the outset of this letter that Jesus is everything. He's everything. In fact, just kind of, this is not, I didn't come up with this, I don't, but I don't remember where I saw it. But I remember it striking me just kind of this way where Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus needs nothing added to him. There's not some portion. Jesus is in himself the fullness of God. Paul in poetic form is going to teach the Christians in Colossae that Jesus needs nothing added and he needs nothing taken away because the fullness of God dwells in him. Jesus is all that we need. 
these, as I mentioned, these words from Paul, they actually form a, uh, become a early hymn that was sung in the church in order that the church might constantly be reorienting itself back to the truth of the fullness of who Jesus is. So we, think of that as we read this. In fact, um, since we've started the like bring your Bible challenge here over these last few weeks, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double up on that. This is a nine-week series that we're in in Colossians. And I want us as a church family to commit to memory Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Okay, so five verses. And I would contend there is not a one of you out here who is worse at memorizing stuff than me. Um, and so we've got eight more weeks to kind of get this down. But it, it strikes me that as the early church said, man, this is so critical. This is so important. We've got to sing it when we gather together. We've got to recite it and when we share space and time together that it's worth us committing to memory so let's turn to colossians chapter one we're gonna pick things up in verse 15 where we see the lyrics of of this soaring poem that right that paul writes describing jesus and as i read this i'm actually going to read it with the name of jesus in place of of the pronouns um, just, I want you to hear it that way. It, it struck me as I, as I read it that way. So, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Jesus. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things. And by Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is also head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that Jesus may come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Paul just gives us this, this vision, this description of who Jesus is. And he begins by describing or laying out for us the identity of Jesus. I'll just tell you right away that preaching through this passage is you are going to find it unsatisfactory. Because there is just every word is full of meaning and depth and it, it warrants so much more time and energy than, than we have here this morning. So spend some time with it this week. Um, I, I'm, I'm getting to the age where uh, when I go to seek expert service for things, um, sometimes the person who's providing the service looks like they're my kid's age, right? And this is most unnerving uh, when it's your doctor. Right When you go in and you look across the person who's going to diagnose whatever is wrong with you, and you're like, you are out of high school, right? Like we, we have, this isn't a Doogie Howser kind of situation we've got going on here right now. And, and if you've, even like when I take my, my car to the mechanic, like I want that mechanic to look like grisly and seasoned, right? Like there's just something about it because the underlying fear that I have in the midst of that is, are they qualified? 
Does this, does this person have the credentials? Are they capable of doing what I most need them to be able to do? See, Paul just, he had just prayed in the verses preceding this that the church would grow in their understanding and wisdom of Jesus. And so Paul gives us this description by establishing the identity of who Jesus is. Again, in a culture that is, is surrounded by the influence of, of Greek and Roman deities and mythologies, each that had their own creation narratives, not so much about what they were necessarily creating, but how they themselves had been created, Paul describes in contrast Jesus as the eternal God who is without beginning. He is the one who creates. Right, so in contrast to a worldview where there's various gods in conflict with each other in their effort to consolidate their own power by defeating their, their counter-gods, Paul sets Jesus above this and describes him as the firstborn over all creation. And that title for us, that word firstborn, that, that sounds to us like somebody was created, right? Like there was a point in time when, when they didn't exist, but that... Paul is borrowing an Old Testament reference, a description that's used to describe royal status. So it's, it's, a, it's a positional phrase here, meaning that he is the rightful heir to, the, the rightful heir to all that God has created because he is the creator. So according to Paul, Jesus is king over creation because he himself is the creator. Look again at at verse 16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It's in Paul is saying this is about identity and authority. He isn't one God among many, but rather in him, the fullness of, of the character and purpose of God is embodied in a human. Again, to quote from N.T. Wright's commentary on, on uh, the letter to the Colossians, he says that the one, referring to Jesus, the one through whom uh, the world was made has now become as a human being the one through whom the world is ruled by the same loving God in other words, he is the author and the king of creation. And the one who is capable and qualified to create is the one who is capable and qualified to recreate. Jesus isn't merely a, a representative speaking on behalf of God. He isn't partially God and he isn't one God among many. Jesus, Paul writes, is the one true God with all power and all authority and all wisdom contained in him. All things, all things, Paul writes, have been created through him and for him. No reduced or lesser version of Jesus will do. By the way, Jesus used this same language to describe himself in the Gospel of John. Right? When he said, I and the Father are one, if you, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father, Jesus said. Now, let's acknowledge and recognize that all the, the philosophies, the, the form may change, but our culture has just as many competing 
entities and ideologies and worldviews, like what, what Paul in Romans refers to as patterns of this world that, that are vying to hold in our own heart and minds first place in everything. And sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's barely noticeable. Other times it is overt and obvious. But I think the question that this forces us to consider is who is qualified, who is capable, what has the right or the authority to hold first place in your life? What has the right or the authority to hold that position of first place in everything in your life? And and Paul's point is that it is unequivocally Jesus and only Jesus. In fact, he's saying if, if it isn't Jesus and only Jesus, then we have, at one degree or another, we are settling for something less. We have adopted something inferior or simply something that is, is false. So he just gives this soaring vision of the identity of Jesus. And he continues on to elaborate on the identity of Jesus by then focusing on the accomplishment of Jesus. The accomplishment of Jesus. Look again at this second stanza here in verse 18. He says, he's also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that he may come to have first place in everything. The ESV translates that phrase, uh, first place in everything. I think the NIV uses supremacy and the ESV uses preeminent, that he would be preeminent in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So how many of you here have ever been to um, seen with your own eyes the Sistine Chapel? Anybody? Few of you, okay. Right, for most of us, our awareness of or our understanding i've got a picture of it here of um michelangelo i was like going through the ninja turtles in my head <laughs> uh, like it, like uh right our our awareness of michelangelo of what he is capable of is viewed by what he accomplished Right, it's our under like so. If you're if you're listening to Mozart, if you're hearing Beethoven, if you listen some classic composer, like our capacity to understand their ability, uh, what they are able to do is recognized through the work that they have left behind. And Paul's making a similar point when we think about who Jesus is. There's a a progressing logic that Paul's using here. He begins by establishing the identity of Jesus. His, his credentials, he's the image of the invisible God. But then he continues on to build on this revealing by what he ultimately has accomplished, that through him, he is reconciling everything to himself. Again, if, try to hear this through the ears of, of the original audience reading this letter, sitting in that church. Right, if you grew up with, with uh, like the pagan Greek and Roman gods all around you and, and the understanding of how they used their power and authority, what was their ultimate accomplishment? 
primarily it was to defeat competing deities so that they could for themselves accumulate more power and more authority. So in that narrative, in that story, humanity is relegated to this pawn in a, in a cosmic power struggle. But, G, but, but Paul says not, that's not what Jesus has accomplished. Right? We aren't pawns in a cosmic power struggle. We are the benefactors of a benevolent God who loves us. We are the the receivers of the gift of the work of his accomplishment. Paul writes, Jesus, the creator God who spoke everything into existence, spoke life into existence, is also the God who recreates. He's the God of, of new creation. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all of this whole, uh, fullness dwell in him and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself. Whether, kings, or whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, so what Paul has done here is he's saying what he has ultimately accomplished, this is only possible because of who he is. And, and how can we be confident of this? What, where, where does our, our confidence, what is it grounded in? Paul says, well, he is firstborn from among the dead. In other words, he's saying it's, our confidence is grounded in the resurrection. Anybody can say anything about themselves or about anyone else. But Paul says we, we have the benefit of the resurrection that has publicly validated what Jesus taught about himself and, and now what Paul has written here. It's because of this, because of who Jesus is and what he's done that Paul says that we have been reconciled in other words we have been restored back into relationship with the creator god this is our again our status for for those when we are in christ positionally he's saying you have moved from a position of standing in opposition to god and you've been put in a place of being united with him in other words he's moved us from a place of enemy to friend in Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. This, this is the accomplished work of Christ. But then I love how, how he ends here. And, and let's look at this as our experience of Jesus. Our experience of Jesus, or, or maybe said differently, who we are in Jesus. Because now Paul makes it personal. Uh, I mentioned earlier that this, this weekend we held at Chapel Street our very first ever men's conference. And um, I, was, I, I walked away from it really encouraged, just really enjoyed the time, um, felt challenged and equipped. And, and I had the opportunity to lead one of the, the breakout sessions. And um, so the theme of the conference, if you aren't aware, was like publicly living out our faith. Um, in different aspects, different ways. We talked about work, and uh, my, my particular breakout group was had the, the topic of thinking about how do we publicly live out our faith with our peers and our friends. And so we used that verse in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, where Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, and uh, do so with gentleness and respect. And we, we kind of talked about it as a framework, and 
and how somebody might come to ask you, like the assumption that Peter has is people are going to observe a hope in you and they're going to, they're going to have questions about it. So what does it mean to be prepared to have an answer? And, and kind of my take on, on that is what they're asking about when they come and say, hey, there's something different about you. Can, I, I don't, help me understand. They're asking about your Jesus story. Like, how, what, what has he done in you that has caused you to live this way, to do these things, to treat people this way? Whatever it is, there's something personal that they're seeing, they're observing in you that they want you to have an answer for. At the beginning of this second stanza, Paul notes that Jesus is head of the body, the church. I don't want to miss this here. Jesus has gathered to himself a community of new creations called, uh, called the church, called the gathering of, of Jesus' followers. This living, breathing evidence of the reconciling work of Jesus. And then beyond that, right, he says we are to be agents of this same reconciling work. Why? How so? How does that work? Look at verse 21 now. Paul makes it personal here. He says, once you were alienated and hostile and your minds expressed in your evil actions. So he's, he's essentially saying this was your status, your condition pre-Jesus. But now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So again, like there he says, it's, it's, this is my story. Like Jesus, this reconciling work that, that we look at and we can think of is like Paul now brings it home. Jesus is, and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done isn't just this, this sort of thing happening out there. He makes it personal. It's not just a story, but in Christ, this is your story. In fact, if you're here today and this is not your story, Paul wants you to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you. He says, once you were alienated from God. My, my condition apart from Jesus, and, and I'll, I'll grant you that sometimes I, I never thought of myself prior to placing my faith in Jesus as being alienated from God, opposed to God, but that really was my condition when I understand it. But... But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you, look what he says about you, holy, faultless, and blameless before him. That is, that's great news. I mean, look what Jesus has done and he has done it for you. This soaring vision of Jesus that Paul has now poetically and powerfully written in this letter that the church throughout history has memorized and sang together it's not it's not just someone else's story it's for you in fact one of the reasons that that we try to faithfully and consistently preach the gospel here 
It's, it's not only because we're, our hope and our desire is that we want everyone to come to faith in Jesus. Obviously, that is a huge motivator. But it is also because those of us who have come to faith in Jesus recognize that we need to constantly come back to this. Because we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. I need to know who Jesus is. I need to be reminded of his identity. I need to be reminded of what he has done, what he has accomplished. And I need to know who I am in him. My experience of Jesus. Paul's letter begins by saying it is all about Jesus. Today, tomorrow, forever, Jesus is enough. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do just come in a, this is one of those moments when words fail. Because to describe gratitude and thankfulness and, and to recognize and acknowledge what you have done for us is beyond um, anything that we can compare it to. And so God, I thank you for, for Paul's description here because it gives us a, a framework, a way of reminding ourselves of who you are and what you have done and that this is not just some uh, accomplishment that is out there in the world for others, but that you, this is our story when we've placed our faith in Jesus. So God, let our worship, despite its inability to give you everything that you are due, may, may it just rise up to you as an honest and sincere, authentic praise for who you are and your identity, for what you have accomplished and the fact that you have done it for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. This I hold. My hope is only Jesus. That, that, is, that is what Paul wants to ground the church in. That if you walk away today and, and there's anything other than Jesus, then, then we miss the point this morning. We can pray with you today. I know the last two weeks we've been talking a lot about the gospel. We use that term, what, what Jesus has done for us, what it means to put our faith in him. If you have questions about that, it's always a privilege to just um, talk with you. I'd be happy to do that. If we can pray with you, our prayer team is available. As I said earlier when I was talking about North Aurora, thank you for your generosity, your continued support. It matters. Um, our generosity boxes are by the, the side doors. Um, lastly, if you're new with us, swing, swing by the welcome desk. We'd love to meet you. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go in the name of Jesus, who is our hope. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.